Welcome back. Uh, week six of our series entitled, That's What He Said. Now, in our series, um, really kind of the, the, what we've been talking about is, is this dude named Jesus lived a, a really long time ago. And, and, and what did he say in, in these books called the Bible or things like that? And, and what did that all really mean for our lives? And so really over the last few weeks, um, we've dissected a few things that Jesus has said. He said some really popular things. And we, we learned he said some pretty things that were controversial. And, and so I've been up here and Cody uh, has been speaking on it. Um, and we've been really trying to, like what I said a little bit earlier, is dissect what some of these things that he said and, and really to bring application to these lives. In light of what Jesus said, what does that really mean for our lives? Now, one of the things I've always found really interesting uh, about Jesus is if you read the Gospels, and by the way, if you're new to church, the Gospels are just a fancy thing. It's just Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They're the first four books of the New Testament, and they're the eyewitness accounts of Jesus's life. They they, they cover his resurrection, his birth, um, his death. All of the stuff really about Jesus's life can be found in those four books. And so if you are new to this Christian thing and, and whatnot, you definitely want to start um, in Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. But anyways, if you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and really what I've been doing for this um, this series, that's what he said, is really been trying to find what are the things that really Jesus said that are like life-changing. Like as Christians, these are the, the doctrines or the tenets that you and I need to absorb into the way that we, um, the way that we live our lives. I found something really interesting about him. Uh, Jesus literally never gravitated towards religious people. He never gra- gravitated towards religious people, which is actually kind of odd when you think about it, because you have this religious leader um, who didn't spend much time with religious people. That's, that's kind of... That's kind of odd. It seems that the people that were most uncomfortable uh, with the temple um, felt the most comfortable with Jesus. The people that felt the most uncomfortable with the temple because they felt ostracized or, or judged, right? And I've, I've talked with some of you guys, and the reason why you stopped coming to the church or, or you, you, you know, took a sabbatical from the church, we'll call it, um, is because someone here like said something and they judged you in some sense. And so you're like, church isn't, it's not for me. And, and the interesting thing is the people that were the most uncomfortable with church, uncomfortable with the temple, were the most comfortable with Jesus. And the people that, that spent the most time at the church or, or, or that were the most comfortable with the temple and the church, um, were the most uncomfortable around Jesus. Another way of really saying this is the people who felt the most comfortable around Jesus were the unchurched, the people that didn't show up every Sunday, I guess you would say. And that's interesting because Jesus is, like I said, he's a leader of this new religious movement. It wasn't called Christianity back in the day. It was called The Way. And the people that kept really showing up to his rallies, showing up to his gatherings, the people that kept coming to hear Jesus speak, the people at least be sitting in the front row were the people who weren't religious. Sure, the Pharisees were there. Those were the religious rulers at the time. And they were way in the back, kind of just shouting like, Jesus, you suck, or like random other things, you know, way in the back. But the people that were really listening and tuning into what Jesus was saying were the people who weren't religious. And I always find that really odd and really interesting because let me guys make this make sense, at least how it makes sense in my mind. Imagine I'm starting a new sporting movement, right? And say it's an Olympic spike ball which is probably happening someday, right? Um, and uh, the people that gathered around me the most for this movement, I'm going to college campuses, I'm trying to get people rallied up for this. I'm talking with people, doing my thing, right? And the people that are gathering around me are the same kids that were reading Harry Potter at lunch in high school, right? Now, there's nothing obviously wrong with reading Harry Potter at high school, but we have different interests, right? We most likely probably, those are the people that are gonna be gravitated towards a really like a sport activity of some sort. And that's totally okay. But our interests and our joys are probably entirely different. And the people that were attracted to Jesus weren't really in the same, I guess you would call it people category as Jesus. They didn't maybe use the same language of some sort when they were talking about something, or they didn't do the same stuff with their free time that Jesus did and didn't associate with the same people that religious people normally would associate with. 
But to, to dig a little bit deeper, we find that the people, um, the, the unchurched people, and this is a big, big important thing for us to talk about tonight. This is the premise or the big idea of what we're going to be talking about tonight. Um, we find that the people who were the unchurched felt most, un, most comfortable with Jesus because they knew that Jesus actually cared for them. He authentically and genuinely cared for people that were the unchurched. In other words, uh, they, uh, they didn't at first really have much in common with Jesus. They didn't have much in common with this Jewish rabbi named Jesus Christ. By the way, Christ wasn't his last name. People ask me that all the time. Um, so these people didn't have much in common with him at all, but because they knew that Jesus cared for them, they followed him. Wow. I, I feel like I could end right there. I mean, literally, if we were just to pause on that, there is, I think that is the best strategy to bring our friends and our family members who have yet to know Jesus to him by caring for them, right? These people had nothing in common with him, but because they knew that Jesus loved them, and by the way, we have a definition of love, right, around here, which is love is an unconditional commitment. Unconditional commitment, regardless of how the other person on the other side of your conversation or your action or whatever it is, however they respond to you, it doesn't matter. It's an unconditional commitment to an imperfect person to bring that person to a right standing before God. That is what love is. Anything that makes that its outcome, that is what love is. And Jesus, his whole life was built around that. You know, when I first became a Christian, um, I, uh, I was so passionate about like bringing my friends to Christ. I mean, I was like, I was obsessed with that. It was, it was odd. I would go over to the lunch tables my senior year of high school and be like, hey, what's up? What are you guys doing tonight? And they're like, I don't know. I'm like, you gotta come to church with me, right? I'm handing out flyers, whatever. I go table to table to table because I was super passionate about my friends or people at my school that didn't know Jesus. And I wanted them to know Jesus. And I would be constantly telling them about the Wednesday night high school events that we had coming up and, or whatever it was. And I would actively invite them to any of the services that I possibly could. But the longer that I, uh, I was a Christian, I found that in myself and in the rest of my friend group, and you may have caught yourself in this trap as well, became kind of less interested about the people that weren't here and more interested and more inward focused about your own community, right? And, and we stopped being so, at least my group of people and even myself, stopped being so evangelistic. It's a fancy church word that means to be spreading your faith or telling people about Jesus and, and, and caring about the people outside of these walls. And yes, there are some obviously really good things about, about focusing inward on community and things like that, right? And, and I love a way a guy named Anley Stanley, he's a pastor, um, he says this, that we are to both, we're supposed to go deep in our faith, and we've said this here, deep in our head, heart, and hands, right? With our head is the, the intellectual pursuit of God and, and, and who we claim to be, and so that we're supposed to rationally understand our faith, and then there's our heart. We're supposed to go deep with our heart, and that is in community, in, in the way that we care for the community here, and then we go deep in with our hands. That's serving, that's caring for, for people, caring for people here as well. And then he says something that there is an essential focus of the church, which is to go wide. Wide is to proclaim the good news to the fallen world. I love um, Cottonwood's great church right over here, and they say something that I love. It's uh, a Christian's job is bringing living Jesus to a dying world. And I love that. I, I love the way that they've, they've summarized that. But what I've, what I've really learned is it's, it's easy, the longer that you've been a Christian, to really shield ourselves from people who have yet to hear the good news. And in some ways, I've learned that my faith has made me somewhat introverted. It's made me not really want to care about going outside and really bringing people. I'm, I'm more focused on who are the people in this room and how can I care for these people. And yes, like I said, that, that is a good thing. But, but there are some consequences to it because in Scripture, it's very blunt. One of Jesus' very last words, and, and if Jesus was going to say anything you know, on his deathbed or, or when he was going to leave and ascend into heaven, you're going to want to tune in, right? Because someone's last words are going to be something really, really important. And Jesus says in Matthew 28, right, to go, to go therefore and to baptize people, to teach them all that, we have, that he has commanded us to do, right? He tells us to go into the world and make disciples. It's very evangelistic. And that's kind of one of the things we're going to be talking about tonight. 
And the longer that you've been a Christian, the easier it can become to be inward focused. Eventually, not intentionally, churches can become, I don't know, somewhat segregated. And what I mean by that is we are no longer really passionate about bringing people who don't know Jesus to church with us. And in doing so, we, we kind of create this, this Jesus bubble, right? This, this Christian bubble around us. And it become easy to become unaware of the real pain in this world. At least I, I could be honest and say that I, working, being a pastor at this church, it, it's really easy to get caught in this bubble. And you realize that there is a world full of people who are hurting, people who, who need a healer. Scripture says that, he, that Jesus is our healer. He's our counselor. He's our high priest. He can sympathize. He cares for us. And so, in fact, one of the things I've learned is in this bubble, what ends up happening is we can become pretty judgmental, right? In fact, some of the, 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 the people that I've, I've known for a good amount of time, but they have been Christians like their whole life, are some of the most judgmental people that I know. And maybe that's the reason that some of you guys have stopped coming to church, because when you think of Christian, you think of judgmental. I love Gandhi. Gandhi has a quote. He says, uh, I like your Christ, but not your Christians. And I always thought that was a really powerful quote for me to me- like, remember. Now, one of the most amazing things, though, when you read the Gospels, and one of the things that really jumps right out right at you when, when, you're, when you're looking at the life of Jesus, was one of the reasons that people who were, one of the reasons that Jesus attracted people, and especially people that were not like him. I mean, people that were not like Jesus liked Jesus. That's an interesting thing. And that's because he used different adjectives to describe people than their culture did at the time. And, and the reality is we all have adjectives, right? I mean, we all have adjectives that describe certain types of people, and, and we categorize people. If we would be honest with us, I think, man, we're probably a lot more judgmental than we would think. And it's pretty hard not to be judgmental. But we use adjectives like, oh, those are the, those are the rich kids, and mommy and daddy pay for college, and they pay for everything else. The other, uh, last week, I was talking about worry, right? And um, I kept talking about Sally Mae. And I've had a few young adults come to me like, what? like, why are you so angry at Sally Mae? Like, who's this girl? Like, or who's this person, right? And I was cracking up. If you don't know who Sally Mae is, you may fit this category. Sally Mae is a loan, a student loans. Uh, so <laughs> I thought that was hilarious. So you have, you have the rich kids, right? And you categorize those people. And, and then you have an idea of what they're going to be like. Everything's been handed to them or, or, or something along those lines. And then, then you have the Republicans, right? Or, or maybe you categorize and you have certain ideas of what a Republican's like, right? That they have NRAs stamped on their forehead or something, right? We don't know, but you have some idea of what a Republican's going to be like. Or maybe you have Democrats, and you have an idea of what a Democrat's going to look like. You have these preconceived ideas of what they're going to be. Then you have the, uh, the Bernie lovers, right? <laughs> or whatever. And then you have ideas of what they're going to be like. And then you have the educated people, and then you have the non-educated people. And the educated people are the people that went to the good colleges, obviously, and the uneducated people are the people that, that didn't go to college. Or, or, and then in between maybe those two, you have the middle ground, which is community college, right? And if we be honest, I remember um, uh, when, I, when I went to community college before I went to Biola, I remember this pressure that I felt when anyone ever asked me, hey, hey what, are you in college? I'm like, yeah, yeah. And like, well, what college did you go to? And I'd be like, uh, yeah, dude, I'm at Cypress College right now, but like, no, so I mean, like I'm transferring and, and I'm saving money, blah, blah, and I would just start, da, da, da. I felt like I had to give like all these excuses, right? Because I was fearful that they were going to uh, label me. They were going to give some um, adjective that, 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 that people would give me that I would be unintelligent or I'd be lazy or, or whatever. And so that caused me to feel uncontent with really who I was because, because of these labels, because of these adjectives that I felt other people were going to give me. And you get it. I mean, we all use additives to describe people. But really, the way that it boils down is you have an idea of what your person is like. You say, these are my people and these aren't my people. And on, you have a list in your mind. These are my people and this is who I hang out with. This is who I get along with. And, and then these are the people that I don't really want to spend much time with. I wouldn't really want to invite them over to my house for dinner. Um, I don't really want to spend much time with them. I mean, sure, we're cordial with each other. I wave. I say hi, but... I don't really like them that much. We don't really have much in common, so I kind of keep my distance from them or whatever it is. But one of the most amazing things about Jesus and the most unique things about Jesus was the way that he used additives to describe people and how he made all people 
his people. He didn't have a list. He didn't have a list of like, these are the people that I'm not going to associate with. And one of the most amazing things about God incarnate, that means God in a bod, one of the most amazing things about that is he didn't have a group of people. He was like, these are going to be my people. These are going to be people I'm going, to, I'm, going to, I'm going to care for and whatever it is. He said, all people are going to be my people. That's one of the most famous scriptures in all of, uh, of the Bible, right? Um, John three sixteen. for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. See, see, what made Jesus so irresistible to some people was the way he viewed the world and the way he viewed the people in the world. He saw all people for who they were, deserving love, deserving dignity, deserving respect, and then he cared for them. Let me give you an example. Today, we're going to um, talk about um, Luke chapter 15. If you have your Bibles, you're, you're welcome to turn there with me and highlight some of the stuff that you may see highlighted on the screen behind you. But let me read it real quick for us. It says this, now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. So Luke is, is writing this. So he's inserting what the cultural labels um, were at that time. And those were tax collectors and sinners. And what's really interesting about this, by the way, is, is the tax collectors were seen so bad that the sinners didn't even want to be associated with them. At one time in history, uh, tax collectors were lumped in with the word sinners. And literally the sinners, the group of people that were doing hoodlum stuff. I don't know. But those people were like, no, no, no. We don't want like the tax collectors even to be like in our label. They are so bad. We don't want them in our label. And so he has like the, in here, Luke is writing the really, really bad and the somewhat bad, right? He's saying the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around Jesus here. He didn't say anything about like the religious leaders yet. He mentions first the people who are far from God, people that are unchurched. And what I find really interesting about this is he literally had gathered a group of people that would never want to step foot into church. Those were the people that wanted to tune in and listen to Jesus. And he did it in a really interesting way. Right? And he didn't have an awesome band and flashing lights or s'mores. He didn't have coffee or water, I don't know, or a building. He didn't have any of those things to attract people. But whenever he spoke, there was a gathering of people around him. We have to ask the question, why? And why was it the type of gathering that it was? Because the way he viewed people, like I said earlier, was so unique. And the labels that he used showed that he actually cared for people. Do you actually care for people? There's really a few ways that you and I can view people. We can view them objects, something to move out of the way, or platforms to extend our agenda over them. Or we can view them as people, human beings created in the image of God. Luke continues, he writes this, but the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. The Pharisees, by the way, were the religious rulers at the time. I love the word welcome sinners and eats with them. See, the religious people would say like, whoa, hey, hey Jesus, Jesus, like, we don't really get you that much. Like we're kind of confused on like your whole mission and, and stuff like that. Because like we, we read the Old Testament, the book of Isaiah, it says, you know, we're going to have like you and, and, and we're kind of, but we're kind of confused because you're like this religious dude that doesn't ever hang out with like religious people. And we know who you claim to be, right? Week one of our series was, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That's John 14, 6. And so you came as this religious dude, but you never like invite us religious people to the party. I mean, you're spending all of your time with unreligious people, but you're a religious leader. Like, well, Jesus, what are you doing? In fact, in fact, we, we, you know, we heard this one time that the very first miracle you performed, you did something crazy at this like house or this wedding where you like, you turned water into wine and 2000 years from now, people are going to say that that was like, the kids are going to be saying that was lit. I mean, it's going to be like, what is, what I'm so, Jesus, like, like, why aren't you inviting us on the fun? We heard the wine was great. Like, why couldn't we be a part of it? We're the religious people. We're the people that you're supposed to welcome. Well, why aren't you spending your time with us? Why are you spending all your time with the people who are unchurched? The people who really don't care about you, the people who aren't in, or reading their Bibles, the people who aren't ceremonially clean, we'll call them, the people who are lost. Because Jesus knew that the tax collectors, the sinners, and the religious people of the time had the wrong view of the way God sees people. 
And I think you and I get into that trap a lot. We see good people and bad people. We see clean people and they would see unclean people. They see men and women, and there was a different structure then. They see men and children, also a different structure. They see Jew and then basically condemned or a pagan. And the problem was that this became the primary way that they were viewing people. They categorized people in these ways, not as actual human beings creating the image of God who deserve dignity, respect, love, and care, regardless of their past or whatever they've been doing. And so Jesus decides that he's going to use this occasion as the opportunity to teach these people on how their heavenly father views them. And so we kind of maybe quickly set the scene for kind of what Jesus is trying to say. So he kind of paints this picture in the background in light of everything we just said. Therefore, this is kind of what he says. He tells these kind of two stories in the book of Luke chapter 15. The first is about a sheep, and that's the one we're going to kind of cover today, a lost sheep. And then the other one was about a coin. And the one right after that is about a son who's kind of been disrespectful and gone astray, and it's called the prodigal son. Now, these three stories are probably some of the most famous stories in all of Scripture that Jesus told. And by the way, I would love for you to read this this next week, Luke chapter 15, um, because there's some really incredible things. But let me read uh, verse three and four for us. It says this, then Jesus told them this parable. So by the way, if you don't know what a parable is, by the way, um, it is a fictional story that Jesus told to illustrate some type of truth, uh, a truth about us, um, our nature, a truth about God, about the world that we live in. It was some type of story, a fictional story that Jesus told um, to, uh, to illustrate something to us, to tell us something about ourselves or the world or heaven or something like that. It says, suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And I love the way he leads them on. He says, doesn't it? Like, don't they? Like, he's kind of like, yeah, of course, right? And you're going, no, that's a terrible business plan. Why would you leave the 99 sheep to go and find the one? Like, what? Like, well, Jesus, what are you doing? That doesn't, in our culture, we're like, that, that's, that's idiotic. Why would you do that? In fact, it reminds me of a memory. Um, when I was a kid, um, I, my neighbors invited me to go um, to the desert with them and ride um, motorcycles. So I brought my motorcycle, and, and one day I decided I was going to take some of the kids out. I had Kyle. Kyle was 10. Um, he had a buddy that came with us, Jake. Jake was 10, and Connor. Connor was 7. And um, so I'm, I'm, you know, I'm flying through the desert, and I'm going up mountains, and I'm looking back. The kids are there, and I'm going back. And I look back. The kids are all there. And then you know, I'm driving again, and I look back, and one of the kids is gone. And I'm like, you know, I'm like, oh, so I look back, and I'm like, dude, where's Connor? Where's the 7-year-old, right? I mean, Jake and Kyle are right there, but where, where's the young one, right? And so I stop, and finally, Kyle and um, Jake, they, they park right next to me, and I'm like, dude, Kyle, where's your brother? And they're like, oh, I thought he was right behind me. And I'm like, we're in the middle of the desert. It's like about to get dark. So I'm like, okay, we have to find him. So I literally say, drop your bikes right here. Get on the back of my bike, because I'm so paranoid that now I'm going to lose these two kids. So I have these two kids on the back of my dirt bike, and I'm like flying through. I'm like yelling, Connor, and like, like, trying to find him, right? And I'm like, finally, we find him. But I, there was no way I was going to risk losing them too, right? I was going to take the two to find the one. I was not going to leave the two to find the one. And that's different than the culture that Jesus is talking to, because they would, they, in their culture, they would have absolutely left the 99 to go and find the one. In fact, he's actually doing something really interesting. So the tax collectors and the sinners and the religious types would all be like shaking their head, like, yeah, we would absolutely leave the one to go and find the, the 99, right? And so he's doing something interesting. He's actually trying to get all these people from all walks of life with different backgrounds and different struggles and different sins on the same page. And he's trying to say, like, like you may think you're different, but you're all the same. He's trying to get all of them on the same page. In verse five and six, he says this. And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. And he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, rejoice with me. I have found my lost sheep. Now, I love the uh, way, again, I'm Andy Stanley. He words this. He says this. In the commentary I was reading, he said this. 
Jesus is pointing this. When, when something in our lives is lost, we focus on it to the neglect of what is not lost. Let me say that again. When something in our lives is lost, we focus on it to the neglect of what is not lost. Imagine if, um, imagine if I call my wife and I say, babe, I lost my wedding ring, but I have my shoes. She'd be like, uh, I mean, I guess your shoes are worth more than your wedding ring. <laughs> At least they are, really. Uh, it's like a $50 ring. Uh, and she's like, all right, that's, that's cool. But flip the script real quick, right? Uh, imagine if, uh, if my wife calls me and she says, babe, I lost my engagement ring, but I have my lipstick. I'd be like, the frick? Your, what? Like your lipstick has like no significance to me, right? It's, it's zero value to me. In fact, I don't even like the shade, right? Like, I, <laughs> just kidding. I, well, like, it's a zero, I don't care. Like it's a zero significance or value to me. But you get what I'm trying to say. When you lose something of value, the fact that you can't point, to, the fact that you can point to some other stuff that's unlost is pointless. Who cares, right? It doesn't matter. Why? Because you're only focused on what is lost. I remember, um, when I was proposing to my wife, what a day. Um, I, uh, I rented a hot air balloon um, just for the two of us in San Diego, like on the beach. And uh, um, they had this like, you know, this woven basket that we were in. Um, and it was like, not that big. I mean, I'm saying it was like from my water bottle to like here. So we're kind of close, you know, cramped up and, and our weight in the basket's kind of pushing it down. So it's kind of like bubbled on the bottom and it made little holes just big enough for a ring to fall through. And I'm all like analyzing it. There's like 15 holes, you know, uh, like don't stand here, make sure the wind, you know, I'm like all freaking out. My heart's pounding, it's beatboxing in my chest, right? And, uh, and uh, so finally, right, I'm like a bird, right? And I like get on my knee or something. Uh, <laughs> I don't know what I do. And I'm gripping onto this box so hard. I'm putting my fingerprints inside this thing. And I'm just, I'm just, I'm just imagining me opening this box and it going, you know, I'm like, I'm going to freaking hop off this thing, you know, uh, right, uh, like not today, right? Uh, parachute. Um, right, there's like no chance I'm losing this thing, right? But at that moment when I'm on my knee, just shaking, holding onto this box, uh, I'm not worried about the wind that was worrying me earlier about the whole creaking of the basket. I'm looking at these like small wires, like, uh, like, we're like, like 3,000 feet up right now. Like I was kind of worried about that. But at that moment, that's not what I was worried about, right? I was focused on one thing. Yes, her going to say yes, but to the ring, right? Yes, her saying yes is important too. Uh, <laughs> that's the whole reason we're there. Um, that was not to lose the ring because it had value to me. I mean, imagine, imagine, imagine this scenario, right? Like I open it and, and you know, I'm on my knee and I'm like, all right, open your eyes or turn over. There was no bird. I don't know what I would say. Uh, and the ring falls out, right? So now she's just looking at an empty box. A terrible experience out of it. I might as well hand her a two by four, right? It would have been terrible, right? <laughs> but the fact is when you lose something or even might lose something of value, it's all that you can think about. And so with all that in your back, in the, in the back of your mind, this is what Jesus says in verse seven. He says, I tell you that in the same way, there'll be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner, including the tax collectors, who repents than over one, than over 99 righteous people or persons who do not need to repent. You need to see how incredible of a statement this really is because it's, it's flowing right over our head. For the first time, a religious figure, one who's claiming to be God himself, is saying this, that as a sinner in the audience, they're saying, wait, 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 the God who created all things cares about me? Wait, wait, like he, he thinks about me? I thought he only thought about like the religious people, like the Pharisees. In fact, right, it, what would have happened is all the religious people would have been up in arms. They'd be super angry at this because they would have thought they were all God thought about. 
They were thought because of their righteous deeds and their good behavior and their church attendance and all that great stuff, right, that God was focused and obsessed with them. And the religious people are angry because Jesus is essentially saying this. God is more interested in the dude that you won't invite over to your house for dinner because he's unclean or he's not who you want or whatever it is than you, a righteous person. This is the first time a religious figure has ever said this about someone who wasn't religious. And by the way, that's what makes Christianity such good news. It's for all people. And it's, it's, it's not your righteous behavior. It's nothing you can do to get to God. It's God came to us. See, but if you look at the life and ministry of Jesus, he looked for people who were lost. People who were on the fringes of society and people who weren't religious. And he did all of that because he wanted people to know that they have a place in the heart of God. They have a special place in the heart of God. People who are far from God actually hold a very special place in his heart. And because Jesus, one of Jesus's greatest desires is out of salvation is to, is to help people like recycle their pain. Is to help people turn their mess into a message, the, the tragedies of their life, any type of tragedy in their life to turn it into a testimony. And because he wanted people to know that people who were, the people who were lost, the people who didn't think that God would have loved them and they, they were distanced and they had no chance to ever be in the family of God, that God cares about them. The God who created all things cares about lost people. In fact, Jesus was so good at this that he began to build a reputation for associating with those who were considered lost. People who were far from God. And obviously this disturbed the Pharisees, the religious leaders, the scribes of that day, because they had adopted an inward view of their faith. Somewhat of a type of a segregation, like I said a little earlier. In fact, it was really part of their working philosophy. The sanctification, another fancy word that becomes more like God. Their working philosophy essentially was to isolate themselves and only work on their own community. The people that were in those four walls. And I think it's easy for us to, to walk into that same trap. And that's really the reason I want to talk about this tonight. Let me explain. I think the stage of, of life that we are in as young adults is very self-focused. And I don't think it's, it's our fault, right? I mean, we're focused on, on, on what am I going to study in college? Who am I going to date? Who am I going to swipe right on, right? Or who's going to swipe right on me, right? Well, those are the big questions that we're thinking. Or we're thinking of what am I going to study here? What job am I going to get? What, what do I like? What, am, what can my parents do so that I can fill in the blank. And I want to suggest to you that culture has, has taught us a wrong pattern of what this life stage is primarily supposed to be about. Yes, this life stage is about making wise choices, but it is also about making ones that impact eternity. We will never meet more people from different walks of life than the years that you are in college. On average, it takes about I mean, 40 classes um, to graduate with a degree. And let's say that there's an average of 30 people or so in one of your classes. That's about 1,200 people in four years that you will have direct contact with. What an opportunity. The big question is, could it be possible that the people that are in your life that don't know God are in your life for a reason? The people that are in that class, the people that are on your sports teams, if, if, if you're still playing sports, the people that are, are, are in your family, whoever it is, could it be possible that those people are in your life because God has given you the opportunities, holding you responsible to tell them about the good news of the gospel? I want to suggest to you that the people, I want to suggest to you, number one, that I think that's highly likely. And two, I want to suggest to you that people that don't know Christ are lost. They're unplugged from the true source of life. And we've talked about this. Like, this is one of the weeks that we talked about, right? We said that they cannot, that we cannot know the reason that you and I are created without knowing our creator. 
There's a reason that you and I exist, and you cannot know it without knowing a creator, for it's, so you, because you have an intended design, a reason that you exist. And so if you kind of checked out today, here's the one statement that I want you to know. To truly care for people, we need to change the way that we see them. If lost people were valuable to Jesus, shouldn't they also be valuable to us? If lost people were valuable to Jesus, should they not also be true about the people who say they follow him? You know, week one of this series, um, we talked about the verse that I said a little bit earlier, John 14, 6. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That is an incredibly exclusive statement we talked about, and it's an incredibly politically incorrect statement. Because Jesus is saying, I'm it. There's one road. Universalism isn't true. There's no other way to heaven outside of me. He said, I am the way, I am the way to heaven. I am the truth. I am that which accurately corresponds with reality because I created reality. And I am the life. You will not live life as it's intended to be or abundantly disconnected from me. And we said that the truth of that passage is that our friends and family are doomed without Jesus. But the good news is that we have the good news. And that is the Easter story. The Easter story is that you aren't good enough. God still loves and cares for you. And so he came condescended, is what scripture says, to become like us. So that he could be our high priest, with scripture, so he could sympathize with us. See, people ask me, like, I don't really understand like, why he had to die and, 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 and what, what this, I don't understand it. The best way I heard it was this, and I think Cody was the one that told me this. We have offended God. Sin is any action or thought that distances you from a holy God. And we've offended him. We have broken his moral law. And yes, God is all loving. He's merciful and he's, grace, he's full of grace and he's forgiving, but he's also a judge. That's where we get our sense of justice. And because we've broken that law, we deserve condemnation. We deserve some type of punishment. Jesus said, send me. I'll take it. And it only makes sense, by the way, that Jesus could take our punishment because we offended God. It'd be as if like I punched someone in the face and then I walked to another person and said, bro, could you forgive me? The guy would be like, no, no, you punched me in the face, right? My, the only person that can truly offer me forgiveness was the person that I've offended. And that's the same with scripture. Jesus had to come. And it's a fancy word, it just means atone, to reconcile us back to God because our offense was against God. And the good news of the gospel is that we can now be welcomed into his family because of what Jesus has done on the cross. And that's the good news of Easter. And then he resurrected to prove that he could do that, that the claims that he made that was God and that he could forgive us of our sins. That's why Easter is such incredible news. And so today I want to challenge you. I want to challenge you to share that good news with someone in your life this week. Someone who is, who, who is unchurched. Someone who wouldn't be comfortable with church, but they are comfortable with you because they know that you love and care for them. You know, even, even to this day, when I, when I think about this topic, about sharing my faith, I'm always reminded of, of a story that is kind of painful for me. Um, for those of you guys that know my story, you know that my dad passed away um, from alcohol. And I remember getting to the hospital, hearing that he wasn't going to wake up and he was in this coma. And I was like, I, I, couldn't, I couldn't wrap my mind around it. And, and if you remember, like I, I've told you that my dad wasn't a Christian. I remember standing over his bed in the hospital while he's on life support, just weeping. And I remember weeping because of conversations that I never had with him because I, I was too afraid of how he was going to react. I wasn't, I guess say I wasn't willing to sacrifice that relationship for the chance that he may be in heaven. 
I want to turn the spotlight on, on the us today and, and our faith and ask, do you really care about people who are lost? Do you care about people who aren't here yet? Do you care about the friends that you hang out with all the time that don't know Jesus? Do you believe in hell? Do you believe that Jesus is who we claim to be and that he's, only, he's the only escape from it? So, so my dad ended up passing away, and he passed away without knowing Jesus. I was remembered of all the opportunities that I could have had. I was flooded with memories. Of, and I can't live in the past, and I understand that, but I was, I was flooded with memories of times that I could have had conversations with him, but I chose not to. For, again, maybe life took me a different way because I was so busy, and so I decided to spend it elsewhere, or because I was afraid of how he was going to respond and react. I, I was afraid I was going to offend him. Is this message worth offending somebody? The answer to that is yes, if we truly care for people. So Jesus cares about the lost. It was a defining moment of his life. And so this week, I'm challenging you to shoot an invite to somebody that, wouldn't, that hasn't been here, hasn't been here in a while, wouldn't maybe come here. We have four Easter services, and they're incredible. Invite them to come sit with you in your family or whatever it is, or maybe it's someone in your family. Or have a faith-centered conversation with, with a friend or a family member that doesn't know Jesus this week. That is my challenge for you. Let me pray for us. Lord, one of the, the most amazing things about Scripture, Lord God, is that you crossed heaven to come to earth. Lord God, I, I am so thankful, Father, for the Easter story. I'm thankful for you deciding that you would send yourself so you would take the punishment, Lord God, that we would deserve. And I'm thank you, I thank you, God, for, for loving us and caring for us. And I thank you, God, for, for caring for me when I've done stupid things, when, I, when I've done things that I've known that, that has distanced us. Yet time and time again, you offer me mercy and forgiveness. And you op- with open arms, you welcome me back into your family. And so today, I don't know the stories of every person in this room, Lord God, but you do. You know everything about these people and, and their stories and the people in their lives that do not know you. And so I ask, Father God, that you convict them that you convict me, you convict us for the people, Lord, that are in our lives that do not know you because you're giving us the opportunity, the privilege, Lord, of telling them that they have a Savior who loves them deeply. Father, we love you, commit our lives to you. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.